church family. I'm very blessed to be here um, with you guys today. I'm excited to be able to open the word of God with you, and I'm hoping that God will speak to our hearts um, in each an individual way for each one of us. So today we're, we're going to be doing a couple things. Um, we're going to start off by thinking about a question of a verse that can sometimes be problematic for some people, and then we're going to use that to jump into um, an illustration of the, of the Bible uses that I hope will actually be practical to you and to myself on a daily basis. So in order to do that, I first want to read with you guys, if you could open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 25, verse 45 to 46. Matthew 25, verses 45 to 46. We're going to read this, ask for God's blessing, and then we're going to think a little bit about what this means. So Matthew 25, verse 45 to 46 says, Then shall he answer them, saying, Verily I say unto you, Inasmuch as you did it not to one of these, the least of these, you did it not to me. And these shall go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into life eternal. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I want to ask you, um, because of your sacrifice, because of your grace, Father, we ask that you would be here with us right now, that your Holy Spirit would uh, cleanse our minds, give us wisdom, give us understanding, that you would speak to us, Father, of that of which we need to be convicted, and that you would teach us from your word. Uh, give us that blessing um, because of your Son and his sacrifice. Amen. So this, this uh, verse is in the context of, of Jesus talking about salvation. And we see here um, that obviously if you look back a couple of verses, this per these particular verses serve as a contrast to two groups of people. So there's the group of people that served God through the least of these around us, who served the poor, who served those who needed help. And God saw that as service done unto himself, and he saw it as something to commend. But then he sees this group of people who did not do to others as God would have done to themselves. And he describes the, the, the punishment for you know, this kind of unbelief, this kind of selfishness as everlasting punishment. So when you talk to certain people, they begin to, to question the idea of, or, or they, be, they begin to propose the idea that you know, when God will ultimately punish the world, it's going to be an eternal punishment. And it's going to be hellfire that goes on forever and ever, and souls are going to be suffering without um, any mercy, without any end to their suffering. And as Bible-believing Christians, we know that that truth isn't really reflected in the Bible. We know that God is a merciful God, and he's also a just God. So when he deals with sin, he deals with sin in a way that is final, in a way that it ends, right? But this verse, you know, the, the specific wording of everlasting punishment, you know, kind of makes people think a little bit. And if you've looked into these verses before, you know that the, the answer to this dilemma, it really isn't very complicated. But I want to look at how this concept of everlasting punishment is used in a different part of the Bible. So if you would look, go with me to Luke chapter 17, Luke chapter 17 and verse 28, it basically connects the idea of everlasting punishment with an interesting concept. So Luke chapter 17, verse 28, and we're going to read to verse 30. It says, likewise, also as it was in the days of Lot, they did eat, they drank, they bought, they sold, they planted, they builded, verse 29. 
But the same day that Lot went out of Sodom, it rained what? Fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. Even thus shall it be in the day when the Son of Man is revealed. So what can we learn just briefly from this verse? The example of Sodom and Gomorrah, is, is, or, or the, the story of Sodom and Gomorrah was meant to be an example. So a microcosm of a future event, a, a mechanism of a future event. So we know that God uses what to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah? Fire and brimstone. And we know that the, the, the reason why he uses this type of, of element, this type of naturally occurring phenomenon is that he wants a final destruction of sin, and in particular this, this, this sinful city of Sodom and Gomorrah. At the same time, if we think about the story for ourselves, we know that this is a story where God approaches Abraham and he says, will I find righteousness in Sodom and Gomorrah? And we have this interesting example where Abraham kind of takes on the, the, the role of Jesus as intercessor, and he's pleading before God for the souls in Sodom and Gomorrah. And he says, well, I find, you know, he starts with a number and he goes down from there. Finally, you know, to all of this, God responds favorably and says, I will look for that, even if it's one person, you know, I, I will look for them and I will have mercy. And it turns out that when he goes into, or he, he walks into the city of, of Sodom and Gomorrah, we know the story of how he, he's surrounded by evil. He's surrounded by wickedness. And even in, in, in looking around, he's only able to find Lot and his family as ones that are holding on to the last vestiges of faithfulness to God. And so he's looking for signs of faith. And faith, if you will notice, is what preserves Lot from the destruction of fire and brimstone that is ultimately um, rained upon the city. So in, in other words, God was looking for faith in the city. And in its absence, he had no choice but to leave them to the consequences of godlessness. And so this fire that destroys the people of Sodom and Gomorrah is the very same fire as we see from this verse that it will ultimately destroy sin at the end of time. Now, if we go to Jude, which is the book right before Revelation, Jude, verse 6, it kind of makes a connection for us. It's quite interesting. Jude, verse 6, says, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality, pursued a natural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of what? If you have it, what does it say? An example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Okay? So think about the verses that we've read so far. In Matthew chapter 25, we read that to those who, re who, do not, who reject Jesus, they will have everlasting punishment. Then if we look at the example of when that punishment is, is, is given, we see from, the, from Luke that like Sodom, that punishment happens at the end of times and it uses fire. And then when we go to Jude verse 6, we know that that fire is an eternal fire. So we can start making some conclusions out of this. Um, so because of the, ex the, the example of, of, of what is used, we know that there's only one person, one thing that is eternal, and that is who? God, God right? So fire by itself cannot be eternal, otherwise fire would be God, right? So when we're talking about what's happening here, really the way to understand this is that this is not describing a process but rather a means of destruction. And to rephrase that, God is not saying, I will destroy, I will use an eternal fire to destroy, in other words, a fire that burns forever, or a destruction that goes on forever, but rather he's using 
the, mecha- the, the, the method itself of fire that is eternal. And I think that will make a little bit more sense as we go on. If you would go with me to Hebrews chapter 12, verse 28. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 28. Because we know that fire, this fire is described as eternal, and there is only one who is eternal. Um, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 28 says, Therefore let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for God is a consuming fire. And this fire, when you look at the word consuming, is a similar Greek word as the word eternal fire. So we kind of start seeing this picture come together where God uses this mechanism of destruction of sin that's described as eternal fire. We see that that mechanism of sin is what he will use at the end of times when he comes back to destroy sin for a finality. Because this fire is described as eternal, we know that there has to be a divine component to this fire. And then Hebrews chapter 12, verse 28 tells us that God himself is a consuming fire. And because God himself is eternal, therefore this fire is an eternal consuming fire. So that makes him, it's him himself, the mechanism by which sin is destroyed at the end of times. But now fire is not just something that God uses, you know, to, to destroy sin. Fire is actually something that becomes a part of who God is himself. And the reason why I want to focus on the, the, the idea of God being an eternal fire is that if we look throughout scripture, whenever God is trying to teach a lesson, whenever God is wanting to portray something that he wants you to be reminded of on a daily basis, he will usually connect a concept or a principle to an act of daily life, an act of nature, a reality of nature, which is why we know that nature is God's second book, right? We were, we were supposed to look to nature for, for wisdom, for learning, for manifestations of who God is. And if we are looking, we should be able to see glimpses of God's character in the structure and the beauty of nature around us. And if you look at the, the, the parables of Jesus as he's preaching to his disciples, he uses acts of daily life, such as fishing, you know, such as cooking, uh, things that are found around daily life as examples for, for his disciples to be reminded of his character on a daily basis. And if you think about an earlier time, you know, for us, we usually associate fire with catastrophe. We associate fire maybe with a nice winter evening when you have a fireplace. You may think of fire as an occasional uh, fire pit when you go camping, but it, it isn't really something that we use on a daily basis because our fires tend to be very contained. You know, we turn on a stove. If you happen to have a gas stove and you'll see a tiny little flame, but you don't really notice it. But if you think of times back, you know, if you needed to cook, if you needed to warm up water, if you needed to warm your house, you know, fire was a daily part of living. For a lot of people, there, there was a lot of work involved in gathering the firewood, starting the fire. So fire was something that would be a daily presence. At the same time, fire was something that had to be respected because an out-of-control fire could, could, you know, could cause catastrophe. So when we think of fire, God is using this idea, this, this visual of fire, something that was respected, something that was useful, and yet something that permeated daily living as something that should have been reminding his people of something more, something special. So let's go back to God being fire, and let's look at the context of how fire becomes a part of who God is. So go with me to Revelation chapter 15. Revelation chapter 15, verse 2. 
And in this concept, uh, or in this verse, sorry, we're looking at a glimpse of heaven, a glimpse of God's glory, a glimpse of his throne room. Revelation chapter 15, verse 2. And it says, And I saw, as it were, a sea of glass mingled with fire, and them that had gotten the victory over the beast, and over his image, and over his mark, and over the number of his name, stand on the sea of glass, having the harps of God. So there are a couple of things that I want you to notice that we're not going to talk about until a little bit later. But I want you to notice that as John is looking at this vision of God's people redeemed, standing before the throne of God, he describes the sea of glass, which surrounds the throne of God. He describes it as an, having the appearance of fire. So he sees, I would imagine in my mind, flames. He sees uh, this this glory that he has a difficult time describing as anything but fire. And yet, even though fire is something that when we, to us is dangerous to the touch, God's people are standing in the midst of the fire before God redeemed. But we can go into even more detail when we look at Ezekiel chapter 10, verse 2. If you would go with me to Ezekiel chapter 10, verse 2. Another uh, set of verses, another chapter that gives us a glimpse into the throne room of God. And it says, Ezekiel chapter 10, verse 2. And he spoke unto the man clothed with linen and said, Go in between the wheels, even under the cherub, and fill thine hand with coals of fire from between the cherubim, and scatter them over the city. And he went in my sight. So if you only look at this verse, it may not be as apparent, but if you look at the context of what's happening in this chapter, this is a vision of God's throne room. You'll see described the cherubim standing on either side of the throne. You'll see this throne that's, that's described as having wheels upon wheels, this, something that Ezekiel is having a hard time understanding. And yet this is where the action, the, 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 the presence of God goes forth and has effect upon the earth. But an interesting little detail is that God is, uh, this, this person is instructed to go underneath the throne between the cherubim, and we, we see here that God's throne is sitting upon coals of fire. Okay, so we saw already a description that the sea of glass has an appearance of fire, but then we also see that the throne itself seems to be sitting on fire, flames. And these flames have an effect because they're used to purify, they're used to cleanse the vessel of Ezekiel. Now let's keep going a little bit. We know that God uses eternal fire uh, for a purpose, as a tool. Furthermore, we know that God is eternal himself, and he describes himself as being eternal fire. And then we also know that he lives and he, he reigns on a throne above eternal fire. Nevertheless, um, what is this eternal fire? What, how does the Bible describe um, what this fire symbolizes? We can think of this a little bit as we read Exodus chapter 24, verse 15. Exodus chapter 24, verse 15. This is going back to Moses. So we know that Moses had some experience with God's eternal fire. Exodus chapter 24, verse 15 says, And Moses went up into the mount, and a cloud covered the mount, verse 16, and the glory of the Lord abode upon Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it, six covered it six days. And the seventh day he called unto Moses out of the midst of the cloud. And the sight of the glory of the Lord was like what? Consuming or devouring fire on the top of the mount in the eyes of the children of God. 
So use your mind, use your imagination to visualize this amazing scene where the, the people of Israel are, are encamped around this mountain. Moses is up into the mountain. God is, has a period of, of purification where the people of Israel are supposed to cleanse themselves, to wash themselves, to prepare themselves to be in the presence of God. And finally, on the seventh day, God says, I am going to show myself. But specifically, he wants to show a, an aspect, a part of himself, which is his glory. And when he manifests his glory, visually speaking, what the people of Israel in the valley, what they are seeing is what? Consuming fire. And it is interesting to me when you read a little bit about the geography of, of where some people say Mount Sinai is. You know, sometimes they show pictures where this mountain, which is what people think was that mountain, you'll see the blackened, um, the, the very most top of the mountain is blackened as if there was a great fire at the top of the mountain. You know, and it's hard to say if it is or not, but it kind of gives you an image. It gives you a visual of what this could have been like. And you can imagine that the people of Israel sitting down in the valley were just amazed and they were, they were moved by the presence and the visual of God's glory. So God describes the devouring fire, the eternal flame of who he is. He describes that as being the aspect or being his glory. So his glory is described as a consuming fire. So when we think about what we've talked about already, we know that his glory or his character, therefore, is the mechanism by which sin was destroyed in Sodom and Gomorrah. It's the same mechanism by which sin will be destroyed in the end of time. And it kind of gives a reason for why when people at the second coming who are not ready, who are not cleansed by his blood, when they see Jesus approaching, they are asking the rocks to fall upon themselves, to end their suffering. Because sin in the presence of God is combustible. Because God's glory is fire, God's glory is eternal flame, and in the presence of sin, nothing can stand in front of it. And we can see this even more clearly as we go to our next verse, Psalm chapter 50, verse 3. Psalm chapter 50, verse 3. And before we read that, I just I want to say, you know, sometimes uh, we think of beauty as something that everybody can appreciate. But when it comes to the beauty of God's character, unfortunately, not everyone can appreciate the beauty of God's character, which is why, you know, when, when people who, who have not accepted Jesus into their life, who have not accepted God's salvation, you know, sometimes the, the calling of God can seem difficult, can seem difficult to stand. So Psalm chapter 50, verse 3 going back to the, the tool or the, the use of God's glory being a devouring fire. Psalm chapter 50, verse 3 says, Our God comes, he does not keep silence. Before him is a devouring fire or consuming fire. Around him is a mighty tempest. A fire devours before the second coming as God is approaching. And this fire is nothing but God's glory, his character, by in, in front of which sin cannot stand. So now the question is, you know, we know that God or that fire is consuming. We know that the instances in which fire has been used in the past have, you know, often been to, to destroy when we think of Sodom and Gomorrah. But then we think about, okay, so, so we, we also saw a picture of God's people standing in the midst of fire, standing in front of the throne of God. So what is it, what is it that God does in order to allow you and I to be in God's presence, to allow to, us to, to stand before him? 
And we know that this is an issue. This is something to think about because this is something that Moses had to experience. When we go to Exodus chapter 33, if you would turn there with me. Exodus chapter 33, we find a fascinating uh, illustration of what it means to be in the presence of God and why it is that being in the presence of God can be so challenging for mere mortals like you and I. So Exodus chapter 33, I want you to go to verse 18 to 23. And this is still in the context of God being in Sinai, Moses approaching God. And Moses has been spending so much time with God that he feels a certain familiarity. He feels like there's this level of, of trust and connection. So he makes a very special request. And he says in verse, he says in verse 18, please show me what? Your glory. So we already know. We've been looking at verses that describe what God's glory is. What is God's glory? Eternal fire. We know that God's glory is destructive when sin is involved. And yet we also know that God's glory produces awe for those who stand in the sea of glass. So there's these two, two effects depending on the person. How does God respond to this request? Then he said, I will make all of my goodness pass before you. And incidentally, we use this verse to connect God's glory to, being, to, to it being his character. So you can make that further step that God's character is his glory and God's character is eternal fire eternal flame. So he says in verse 19, as we were reading, I will make all of my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. He's describing his presence, his glory as his goodness, his mercy, his compassion. Those are the things in which sin cannot stand. Those are the things that make sin not be able to exist in the glory of God. Verse 20, but he said, you cannot see my face, for no man shall see my face. And what? Live. Think about it. You and I cannot stand in the face of mere mortal physical fire. Now imagine standing in the face, in the presence of God's character, God's glory, when our hearts by nature are so sinful, so unlike God. It's an, it's, it's, it, this gives me the ability to then understand why the idea of it even being possible for a person like you and I to stand before the king of glory, to stand in his presence for even a second, it makes it seem like an impossibility. And it kind of paints the picture that whatever it is that God does through the process of salvation, really it is a miraculous process. Because salvation is supposed to lead to you and I being able to stand in the presence of God. So it makes me wonder, what is salvation doing in my heart? Is it, really making, is it really making me somebody different? Is it really preparing me to stand in the presence of God? Exodus 33, we keep reading verse 20. But he said, You cannot see my face, for no man shall see me and live. And the Lord said, Here is a place by me, and you shall stand in the rock. So it shall be while my glory passes by that I will put you in the cleft of the rock, and I will cover and I will cover you with my hand while I pass by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. So God is at such a close level with Moses that he says, I am going to do everything in my power at this stage in the process of salvation to, get you, to allow you to experience the smallest glimpse, the shadow of my glory. And even then, 
We know that after all these experiences, when Moses comes back from spending time on the mountain, the, the people of Israel described, described him as being so glorious and radiant that he had to cover his face because his face was radiating the glory of God. So think about what it would be like to not just experience the back of God's glory, the back of his presence, but to stand in the sea of fire, the sea of his glory, the sea of his character, and to look forward to an eternity of experiencing this that we ourselves right now cannot even imagine or fathom. And yet this is what God wants to accomplish through the, the plan of salvation. This is what he longs to do, have us, allow, allow us to be a part of his presence. Go with me to 1 Peter chapter 5, 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 10. Talking a little bit about what it is that God wants from his people. Why it is that God allowed himself to be diminished enough to come here on earth to allow us to be a part of his presence. 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 10. And after you have suffered a little while, it says, the God of all grace who has called you to what? His eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. So when we think about the question of will it ever be possible for somebody like I, somebody like me, so sinful, so far from being able to stand before the presence of an all-consuming, glorious God, when asked that question, God says, you have suffered, you are sinful, you are unworthy, but my goal for you is that through my grace, I will call you to what? Eternal glory. And we know from our study so far what eternal glory means. Eternal glory does not mean living forever, although that is part of what he wants for us. Eternal glory does not mean riches and houses of gold, although that is something that he wants for us. Eternal glory, his utmost, most precious desire, is simply for the ability for us, uh, the ability for us to exist, to even be able to survive standing in his presence. Because as you can imagine, he is tired of having to have a long-distance relationship with his people. He is tired of the fact that when you and I, when his people, the people that he has sacrificed so much to save, get anywhere close to the true nature, the true beauty of his character, we are not able to survive. Our souls are not able to survive because there is so much sin in our very nature. Now, fire, as we have been talking about, is, is to me an object lesson a daily reminder that the purpose of redemption, the purpose of God's plan of salvation, is to enable us to live in the presence of eternal fire, to enable us to live in the presence of God's glory. God abides in fire. He lives in fire because his glory is fire. And when a person is sanctified, God enables that person to stand in his place. And actually the idea that a human would stand in God's presence isn't without an example. Actually, it isn't without more than one example. And we can actually go back in Scripture and look at people who God restored so close to his image, so close to his presence, that they became a part of his glory, and God took them with him. Go with me, and before we look at that, go with me to John chapter 14, verse 4. John chapter 14, verse 4. This is the promise that God has for you and I. This is something that we can claim, something that we can put our faith in. 
John chapter 14, verse 4, I'm sure you know this verse, and it says, And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. So the purpose of salvation is to make it possible for you to be where God is also, for you to be where God's mansions are. But then we go and look for that example in 2 Kings chapter 2, verse 11, an example that can give us hope, that can give us a reason to look forward to being in God's presence. 2 Kings chapter 2, verse 11 says, And as they went, or as they still went on and talked, behold, chariots of fire and horses of fire separated the two of them. And who? Can you think of who this person, the chariots, came for? Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. So when God, when God comes to earth to take up Elijah, he comes manifesting in and the trait that describes his glory, in the trait that describes his character. And because of the work that God had done in Elijah, Elijah was able to be taken up and stand in the presence of God's character. But there's an even more interesting example, in my opinion, because it's so practical. And I think you can think of this one. Where a group of three young men stood in fire. Can you think of it? Go with me to Daniel chapter 3, verses 21 to 25. A, a, a fascinating example of God's mercy, his character, and his ability to transform lives. And we're going to be reading quite a bit of these passages. So let's start in verse 21 of Daniel chapter 3. 3, verse 21. Then these men were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, and their other garments, and they were thrown into the burning, fiery furnace. And we know that this fiery furnace is fire. That's just regular fire, what we would describe as a, you know, a bonfire or whatever. But because this is a place where you know, maybe bricks were, were, were burnt into, you know, to build their strength, this is a fire that had to be heated more with billows, you know, to, to be, you know, the, the, for the temperature to be high enough for this forging to occur. So because, in verse 22, because the king's order was urgent and the fire, in the, the furnace overheated, the flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. 23, and these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the burning, fiery furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, Did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, True, O king. He answered and said, But I see four men unbound, walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods." These are men walking in the midst of the fire. And the reason they are able to walk in the midst of the fire is because they are able to stand in the presence of God. The reason they are able to stand in the presence of God is because their character has been purified. God's grace has covered them. There is no sin in that moment to, be, to consume them. There is no sin to catch on fire, to destroy them. And God, Jesus himself, is able to walk in the midst of them. And when the three men that, that bound them and put them in are faced with this fire. They perish immediately. When the king is faced with the reality that these men are able to withstand God's presence itself, he's able to recognize God's presence in the furnace. Nebuchadnezzar is 
prostrated. He is humbled, and it leads to a process by which he, God is able to work in his heart for the future. And it is thus that God is wanting to have a sanctifying effect in our lives. Why? Because he misses our presence. He longs for us to be able to experience his glory, to be able to experience his presence. And I ask myself, how can it even be possible for somebody like me to look forward to standing in God's presence? And yet we see verses like Colossians verse one, chapter 1, verse 27, that reads, To whom God would make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is what? Christ in you, the hope of glory. So if we have any hope of being in his glory, if we have any hope of standing in his glory, it is only through the, the, the presence of Christ in us right now. So how does God dwell inside of us? How does he live within us? How does he prepare us to stand in his glory? We can look back to Ephesians chapter 3, verse 17. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts, how? Through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses all knowledge, that you may be filled with the fullness of God. There is so much to unpack, unpack here because, number one, what is the starting root mechanism by which God is able to dwell and abide in our hearts? It is faith. And we know that, or we can imagine that as the three Hebrew young men were approaching the fire, the only mechanism that was keeping them from fearing, from having any doubts, was an unquenchable unwavering faith that God had their lives in his hands. They were walking towards that fire, not worrying whether or not that fire would consume them. They were walking without, to that fire, assured that their faith in God would not go without recompense, that it would not go without an answer. And it, and it was because of that, that whether they lived or whether they died, they knew that their lives were in his hands. That was unquenchable faith. And that was the faith that enabled Jesus to walk in their midst for them to be a part of his glory and his character. And yet we also see here in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 17, that the purpose for, of Christ dwelling in our hearts through faith is that God, Jesus, being in our faith, that we would be grounded in love and have the strength to comprehend God's character, which is here described as the breath length, height, and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. So the purpose of us being transformed, for the purpose of us having Jesus live in our hearts is not so that we can walk amidst amazing flames of beauty and, and greatness and not be consumed. No, those flames are, are but a visual manifestation of who God is. Those flames are a visual manifestation of God's love the length of which, the width of, it, of which, the height of which is something that right now we cannot come even close to understanding. We preach, we talk, we, we think about the concept of God's love, we think about his sacrifice, but if we truly comprehended his sacrifice, his love, his character, we would be living in his presence. We would be walking in his fire. And that is the goal that Jesus has for you and I on a daily basis, to daily exercise our faith, take the steps to allow his grace to purify us, to allow his grace 
to change us so that we might come a little bit closer each day to comprehending his glory, to comprehending his love. God's ultimate desire is to, for us to be able to see the fullness of who he is, not just glimpses of his back, hidden in a crevice and covered by his hand. And it is for that reason that he gives this, this final pleading, this final prayer to the Apostle Paul in Jude chapter 20. But you, beloved, sorry, verse 20, Jude 20, but you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord, Jesus Christ, that leads to eternal life. I'm going to read that one more time because it has all the components of what it is like to live in, God, in faith, live with God's presence, and to live in preparation for life in the flames of God's character and his glory. But you, beloved, building yourselves up, and I'm going to add the word daily, in your most holy faith, and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And it keeps on saying, two verses later, now to him, who is able, who is able, him, him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen.